0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: One of the great joys of that show, it was like walking down the street corner, hanging out with your friends every day. There was so much camaraderie and friendship, which is not very common on television, not like it was. On this show, so you knew when when you read the script that so and so was going to be killed in the show. You weren't going to be hanging with them all the time, and that was the uh, sadness that we felt.
0: And now it's cracking. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast, episode one hundred and twenty-five. This week, my guest is a critically acclaimed actor. Writer, director, and author, he's had an amazing career in television, but he actually got his first big break on the film set of Martin Scorsese's 1990 mob epic Goodfellas. Then nine years later, a role on The Sopranos would change his entire life and TV forever. I'm talking, of course, of Michael Imperioli, who crushed it as Christopher Montessanti on that program, and then he crushed it as himself on this podcast. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to it. This is episode 125 of the Jim Podcast with Michael Imperioli. Michael, it's so good to visit with you. I've got a lot to get caught up with you about. But first things first, we're obviously in a very, very scary time right now. So how are you and your family holding up during this period?
1: Um, you know, we're trying to keep things together as much as we can. You know, um, I lost the, um, three friends and a cousin uh, in the last uh, week and a half to coronavirus. So we, it's been pretty rough. But, uh, you know, we're... Um, just trying to get through this as best we can
0: and i'm really really sorry to hear that yeah it's it's pretty crazy it's pretty rough how how are you processing that and what kind of conversations are you having with loved ones and how do you even approach something like that
1: you know trying to really you know remember that we have to appreciate what we have while we have it you know what i mean and those closest to us and and and, uh and our family and dear friends, and just appreciate them uh, even more than we've
0: ever had. Again, I'm very, very sorry to hear that. So you, and there is no convenient way to move beyond that, except to say that you and your guy, Steve Sharippa, are hosting a podcast, and it's called Talking Sopranos. Obviously, you can pick and choose, Michael, at this point in your life, and your career, what you want to take on. So why did you take this on, and what are you looking to do with the platform?
1: Well, I mean, it actually this relates to what we were just talking about in this time that we're in and dealing with the coronavirus and and, and how difficult it is. You know, we we were approached six months ago by and all, all at once by three different producers. That's pretty much at the same time, it was very strange, uh, but because they know we're friends and they know we've done a live stage show like an Inside the Actor Studio thing around the country. We've done it in Australia and. Uh, we were approached by three different companies about doing a podcast. And, um, you know, we spoke about it and we figured out a way it might work and we found a company we liked and producers we liked. And um, we announced it at the end of February and we were going to release it in April, record at the end of March in a studio in New York. And, you know, everything changed you know, in the middle of March, pretty much. And uh, we said, let's forget this idea. Let's wait till everything's back to normal or at least Close to normal again. It's not. We both felt kind of why would we do this? And uh, you know, at this point in time, maybe it's a little tone deaf. And we both received overwhelming, you know, communications from fans through social media, in particular, saying we need this now. We we heard you doing it. When is it coming out? We're home. We're watching The Sopranos in, in quarantine and shelter in place, and we would love a podcast from you guys right now. So then we said, all right, uh, with that in mind, you know, in that respect, we found a way to do it remotely and not in the studio, but in our homes and, and get it out like in April, early April, like we said we would. Um, and here we are.
0: And here we are. Now you and Steve, obviously, as you mentioned, you guys are friends and you go way back, but what's it been like so far? What has the reaction been like and what's the process been like for you to host a podcast?
1: Um, you know, it's, uh you know, particularly with Steve, it's just very natural, you know, because we're having a conversation, Um you know, as friends. And both of us have a lot of distance from the show, not only because it went off the air in 2007, but we haven't really watched it since, they their initial airings, to be honest. You know, I mean, I'm not somebody who likes to watch his own stuff and, and re-watch it and relive it. It's not my thing. Um, but I do have a great love for the show and appreciation, so it's kind of amazing to re-watch it with so much time uh, in between from when we did it now, and, and it's, uh, you know, there's ample food for thought and lots of stimulating ideas for conversation, and uh, so far, people are loving it
0: all right so for those who do not know you're going to break this thing down episode by episode michael i'm curious like what is it like to watch 20 years later what's it like for you and obviously it holds up but what's it feel like when you see it and when you watch it back now after all this time
1: well it's um it's really funny i you know i remember how funny the show is it's very entertaining it's really well done in a lot of ways, it's bittersweet for us because there's some, a lot of people both in front of and behind the camera who are no longer with us, particularly, you know, Jim, Jim Lafini, you know most notably. So it's bittersweet in a way, but it's also very pleasant. And, and um, you know, I'm proud of the work, and, and, and there's a lot of happy memories attached to it. Um, you know, the other reason why we thought a podcast is a good idea is that in the last year and a half, a whole new generation discovered this show, which I never expected. Kids in their 20s and 30s and late teens and stuff who didn't watch it in its initial run and love it. It's become kind of a cult thing among young people, which I didn't really expect. And a lot of these young people love podcasts uh, and are on social media. And um, so it seemed like, oh, wow, there is a there is totally an audience for this um you know because we always had an audience that watched it when it was first on and they had soprano parties and made pasta and ordered pizza on the sabby sunday night but this generation you know can watch it whenever they can binge it they can stream it you know whenever they want so um this is a whole new audience and that's exciting
0: listen you and i are about the same age so i know exactly what you're talking about i remember what that show was like i remember those sunday parties and so, and by the way, what you're saying is not a given. This does not happen very often. The fact that it found another generation and another audience is pretty amazing in and of itself. I'm curious, is, is there any way that the show could possibly hit this generation the way it did ours back in the day? I mean, it can't enlist the same type of reaction, can it? Or maybe can it?
1: Uh, the young people that I've been talking to and meeting and hearing from are very, very passionate about it. They really... You know, I mean, they're not having the same, I guess, nostalgia of that communal feeling, watching it with family and friends on Sunday nights, talking about it Monday morning, you know, at work or on the water cooler, that kind of thing, which doesn't really exist that much anymore in TV because we're in the age of streaming DVR and all that kind of thing. But um, a lot of them are very, very passionate about the show and the characters and the the music and the style and the fashions of the show and the filmmaking of the show, it's really I guess part of it may be that this generation grew up with a lot of really high end television, you know, in the you know, golden age of television with great writing, great series, more out of the box type material. So when they discover The Sopranos, which in some ways was the show that you know, open the door for all of that and open the floodgates for all that type of programming they get it and they respond
0: I think that's extremely well said number one they're used to things on demand it's not like, I'm not saying it's not appointment viewing but we used to have to wait every week for it to come on and you're right they're accustomed to this sort of thing and Michael I was going to ask you about that sort of thing we're talking about exceptional television what was it like to act on such an exceptionally written and produced show
1: was phenomenal. I mean the 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 material that I had as an actor, particularly for me, for my character who, you know, had such a wide range of emotion and a wide range of situations and the other thing for television, very often in T V before the Sopranos characters wouldn't necessarily evolve very much. You know, you introduce a character in the first season and a lot of times those characters pretty much the same through the course of the series. The audience expects this character to fulfill this sort of function, and that, you know, it's a kind of these people evolved over time. I mean, Christopher, in particular, in the first season, in the first episode, was like a kid, you know, and impulsive and, you know, immature and rash. And, you know, he, he stayed impulsive to an extent, but over the seven seasons, he did grow and take on more mature responsibilities and more mature situations and we see him struggle through that. So for an actor that this film was the scripts were gold. I mean, you know, they were always unexpected, always interesting, and pushed you as an actor.
0: Well, not totally unexpected because you were writing on the program, which I want to get to in a minute, but I want to stay on Christopher because he Christopher was such a complex dude with polarities, substance abuse, highs, lows, like how challenging was it both emotionally and even physically to find that character for you and to play that role?
1: Well, it was challenging, but that's the kind of challenge you want as an actor. I sure. mean I, partic- I particularly like to be challenged. I like to be pushed. I like to have to really work hard and discover stuff and, and take chances. And and push myself out of my comfort zone and like, but for, for instance, like drug, you know, the drug use, heroin use, and being states of, you know, intoxication and being high in certain scenes, you know, it's a lot of fun to play as an actor. I mean, it's not, it's it's it it just you have to use your imagination. You have to use your skills to to create those states of mind, those altered states of consciousness and altered states of mind. It's a gift as an actor to have have material that challenges you in that respect.
0: Right. Now, he, Christopher, obviously had some pretty serious demons, but, and to your point, he evolved a great deal, as the other characters did, too, and he had demons, and he did some pretty regrettable things, but that's not to say that he did not have redeeming qualities, because he did. So, like, what did you like and respect about him?
1: Well, for me, what I always respected and loved about him was that he was willing to put in the work um and i mean you know he like he had these aspirations of being a screenwriter or being an actor playing himself in his life story and producing movies and this and that and a lot of people do a lot of people in all walks of life I hear, my life is so interesting my family was so crazy i should write a movie or i should be in a movie he actually did the work he bought a computer, figured out the software, learned how to write screenplays, took an acting lesson, acting class, you know, wrote a screenplay, tried to get it produced. You know, he actually sat his ass in the chair and did the work. And the same thing goes for, you know, his career as a mobster. You know, he was very ambitious. He wanted to rise up the ladder, of, uh, you know, in, in the Cosa Nostra, and he worked really hard. And took on responsibilities, and he did that in, in, in a lot of ways in his relationship with Adriana, and opening a club with her, and wanting to give her a career in the music business, and 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 it go, goes on and on throughout the show. And, and so he he wasn't someone who just sat back and expected everything to be handed to him. Although he did at the same time have a, a high sense of entitlement, but he he worked really hard and and uh, was ambitious, but but you know, put the put the time in and the elbow grease, and I always respected
0: that. Right. Now, Michael, I've heard you say that you really fell in love with the show after the first season. Like, so much to like about the program, obviously, but specifically, what did you fall in love with?
1: It was the uniqueness, the specificity, and the depth of the storytelling and, and the, you know, the, the, the complexity of the characters. And, uh, you know, this... This type of almost novelistic storytelling that I I had very rarely seen in television and I had never had the opportunity to do in television. Um, That really sold me on the show. And the sense of humor, which was, this is a show that, you think of it as a mob show and there's violence and, you know, drama and scary stuff, but it was hilarious at times. Uh, Outright, just slapstick sometimes.
0: This show is really funny. Really funny. I mean, really heavy, but very, very funny. Now, speaking of writing, you did write those five episodes that I mentioned. You also produced on the program. How did you get the opportunity? How did you position yourself to write for the show? And then I'm curious, that writer's room, what was that like?
1: I What happened was uh, after the first season, like you just brought up, I fell in love with the show, all aspects of the show, and the, all the characters. So between season one and two, I wrote a spec script, uh, of The Sopranos, an episode. And also between season one and two, a movie that I had co-wrote for Spike Lee called Summer of Sam came out. So I invited David to the premiere of that to show him my work as a writer and then gave him this spec script. And you know, and he liked my ideas and he liked the way I, I, I wrote. And then, then, uh, you know, then we started working. Um, I was in the writer's room at times. Sometimes I wasn't because I was... Often very heavy on set as an actor, you know, work, working, you know, a lot. But, um, you know, the writer's room is a very, uh, writing period is very hard. The, the blank page is always very scary. And it's a, it's a strange pro, it's a very different process than acting. You know, acting, you get the script, you know, you, you study it, you figure out what, what choices you want to make and what's the best way to approach it. I mean, writing very often, you're starting from scratch, you're starting from nothing, and you're building stuff out of the, you know out of the air. So um, it's always 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 challenging, but very uh, working with David Chase um, was an education in a lot of ways for
0: a writer. So I would imagine you felt really good about what you had to offer, obviously, and that he had seen your work, so he responded favorably. But I mean, were you nervous? Did he like, when you gave him that spec script? How confident were you in it and what was his reaction to it?
1: He really liked it. I mean, was I confident? I mean, I liked it. I thought it was, um, you know, I, I, I decided to do it because I felt like I, I did have the sensibility and under, un, had some understanding of what he was trying to do with the scripts. So he liked it enough to, uh, actually what happened, my script that I wrote, I had the central story with Christopher ODing on heroin and then having these out of body after life experiences of heaven and hell and purgatory and that which he liked and said, Well I'm planning season two super to get shot so we can use all that stuff after he gets shot as opposed to him or Dean. So that's that was how it how it worked.
0: Hey Michael, were you like shot like I'm dead and I'm gone or shot like I'm going to recover and it's gonna be fine?
1: Um it was touch and go. Yeah, it was touch and go. It was. It was pretty. Oh, when when you told me that? No, yeah, no. I no.
0: mean, not like shot. Like I'm off the show in season two. No, no, no. That never. I never was. I'll be honest. It's
1: probably stupid, but I never really worried about that.
0: Uh huh. <laughs> be, Michael, because because you didn't worry about that sort of thing, or because you knew that the show needed you, and they were not going to kill you that early.
1: Um. Yeah, I kind of felt it was, you know, he was a pretty, you know, important character that was needed. I mean,
0: obviously oh, there was yes.
1: a chance of that. Like, Big Pussy got killed off after season two. So, it, you know, that kind of set the to tone that nobody was uh, nobody was above <laughs> getting rid of. But um, I don't know. I never really... I I don't know. I just never really
0: worried about it. I get you. And I'll say it for you. Hell yes or hell no, they weren't going to kill you in the second season. You know, since I spend all my days talking to athletes, except when I do this as a side hustle and this is amazing, but, you know, athletes get traded and it's always, it's business, it's business. It's not personal. If big pussy gets killed off in season two, do you all just say, well, you know, we know that this can happen, it's just business, or is there kind of an emotional reaction to it? Is that a tough thing to deal with for everybody?
1: Yeah, sure it is. It, and even the other characters after Big Pussy, you know, when they would get uh, written off or killed, it was you, because um, you knew you weren't going to be seeing them on a regular basis, and that's that was sad because the Sopranos, um, one of the great joys of that show, it was like walking down the street corner hanging out with your friends every day. There was so much camaraderie and friendship, which is not very common on television, not like it was on this show. Um, so you knew when when you read the script that so-and-so was going to be killed in the show, you weren't going to be hanging with them all the time. And that was, uh, that was the uh, sadness that we felt.
0: No, I get that, and you could tell the chemistry. You could tell how strongly everybody felt about each other, and how much respect there was. You know, yeah, when...
1: and to have a success together. You know, a lot of us had worked together before, before The Sopranos, um, in movies and, and uh, theater, particularly independent movies and theater and, and stuff. And, and uh, so, a lot. Some I went to acting school with two of the actors from when I was a teenager. So, so to have a success like this together really bonded us as well besides just the, the the chemistry and and just the you know the friendship but that that there's something to that you know
0: And I'm going to follow up on that, too, because I know you're a sports fan. You understand the dynamics of teams and sports. You know, a lot of times when a team has success, the problem with that is when they're all fighting for that one thing and then they get there. If they win an NBA championship or a Super Bowl or World Series, whatever it might be, then they want theirs. Then there's a battle for credit. There's a battle for the next contract. There's a battle for who's going to get credit for this type of thing. When you all come up together and you all experience the kind of success that you did on the show, how did you all react to it? Was there still that great conversation? camaraderie and that spirit, or were people, frankly, maybe kind of looking for their own? Um, you
1: no, know, it kind of stayed, you know, we stayed united, and we stayed friends, and a lot of that I would give credit to Jim Gandolfini, because he was not, I mean, he was the lead actor on the show, of course, and worked as more than anybody, any of the other actors, but he wasn't the star, he was, like, the team captain more than like the star who everybody had to kind of cow tow to. He was the team captain. For both the actors and the crew people. He was very much, you know, egalitarian in that way and wanted everybody to be respected and everybody to have a good experience and it was very important to him. And he set that tone, you know. When guest stars would come on, even people who, you know, were had success in the past they got them you know they got the vibe pretty quickly that this was not there was no diva ego trips happening here that it was you know fighting the good fight and all for one and one for all that kind of feel
0: mm. you know Michael he even as a is just somebody who watched the program as a fan of the program it just seems so just shocking just so shocking when he passed when he was fifty one I can't imagine what that was like for you as somebody who was as close to him as you were <sighs>
1: it was really shocking it right. was it was terrible We I had just seen him two weeks before he passed away uh, at a premiere but we we did a a bunch of us were in a kids movie a Nickelodeon movie that Steve Sharippa wrote it was a, based on a kids book that he wrote and we went to the premiere in LA and we hung out and he was in really good spirits and happy and you know it was it was uh, six years after the show had ended the supremacy had ended and he was kind of finding himself again, I think, because the show demanded a lot of him, you know, as an actor, but more as a person, too. And the last time I saw him, he looked really happy in, you know, of life. And, and um, you know, for me, I acted with him more than I've acted with any other actor, probably more than I will act with any other actor. So there's a You know, I mean, and I've been doing this my whole adult life, pretty much 37 years. So that, you know, and we went to some heavy places together, you know, as as, uh, actors. And uh, we were there for each other through a lot of personal things at the same time. So it was a huge, huge loss in so many ways.
0: Michael, I'm curious, you're pretty spiritual, and we're going through a time right now, you and I already spoke about, your extreme loss at the very top of the conversation. I'm curious, like, when you go through something like that with Jim, are you personally thankful for the time that you had with him, or is it still hard, and on some level, are you still sad about it? Both. Right.
1: Both. Without a doubt, yeah. I mean, um, I wouldn't trade, you know, the the times we had and the work we did. We also, uh, as a group, the guy, especially the guys, sometimes, you know— Lorraine would come with us and uh, with Jamie Lynn and Dre once in a while, but we often traveled. But we did a lot of appearances around the country, like especially in casinos and, and, uh, we did a lot of charity events together. And, and so we, we, we had a lot of fun, you know, and, um, I wouldn't trade any of those memories, any of the work memories, any of the friendship. Um, and, but it's, uh, it's a whole and, and it, uh,
0: It always will be. And I appreciate your thoughts on that. Thanks. You know, you mentioned how the show ended. I I know better than to ask you about how the show ended, but let me ask a different kind of question then. We know about the fans, and even the second-generation fans are rabid. I mean, this is an amazing fan base. I'm not going to ask you how the show ended or your thoughts on that, but I will ask you, what do you make of the crazy reaction to the way the show ended?
1: I'm pretty sure David expected that. I think he knew that that would push buttons. Um, uh, I think in a way... Listen, there's no... I don't think there's a satisfying way to put a button on this show. You know, like, if he would have killed Phil Leotardo or someone would have killed Tony or someone would have killed Carmel. I mean, I don't know what that satisfying ending could have been. You know what I mean? And I think... What he decided, what David decided to do in the end was very creative, very risky and very provocative and still has people talking and guessing and thinking. So, you know, I I think that there's something to that.
0: I do, too. You know, Michael, one of my favorite TV shows ever was The White Shadow. I love, 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 right? I I thought you might I love that show. And I love Tim Van Patten as Salami on that show. And he went on. He's had an amazing career as a director and a producer. And he did work on The Sopranos. Did you ever work with him on that program? Your program? On Sopranos? Yes. Oh, yeah. He he directed many of them. Yeah, right. Like, what was he like to work with? What a great guy.
1: Great. Especially because he understood acting. You know, directors often come from, some come from acting, some come from the cinematography side. Some come from the writing side. Some come, come from the producing side. And some are, have always been directors. They study that in school and make films or whatever. And everyone brings different things, you know. And, uh, but, uh, you know, Tim brought that experience as an actor. And often you can that really will help your performances when you're dealing with a director that, that understands that process.
0: Right. Really quickly, before I let you go, and I do appreciate your time, one of my favorite things about you right now, well, anytime, is you are talking to us from Santa Barbara, something we have in common. I I went to school at UC Santa Barbara. I got my media start in that market. That is an extremely important place to me. You yourself could live anywhere. What do you like about Santa Barbara, and how did you come to live there?
1: Uh, I, like the, I like the natural beauty. I like the calm and the quiet. Um uh, I, I live here in New York, so, and there are two, you couldn't really find two more diametrically opposed places, but that's good for me because I like big cities and I love New York. New York will always be home. And this is like an antidote and kind of a balance to that. Um, I came here for the Santa Barbara Film Festival, uh, and I think in 2010, as uh, a film that I wrote and directed had its U.S. premiere here. And that's how I discovered it.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. Now, I'm not looking for an address, but it's not, you're not like Montecito or Hope no, Ranch. You're Metro. You're Santa Barbara, right? Yeah. I love yeah. that. I like that even more. Yeah. What's your go to spot there? Where do you guys go?
1: Um, Dario's a good spot. Uh, Oleo and Limone is a good spot. Um, I go to, uh, for, um, Mexican food. There's the Rose Cafe.
0: Yeah. Is I wonder is the 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 Chase Bar and Grill is that still there? That's still there. Yeah. Oh man, when I was in college, that was there. there. The Palace is that still a thing? That's still there. Yeah. Joe's, Michael. How about Joe's? Joe's Can you still get a good cocktail with Joe's?
1: That's still there. Yeah. That's great. You know about spots?
0: Yeah. Let me tell you, I love that place. I love it. And then you. You, my wife and I, we still not to the extent that we used to, but we still have a few race horses. You like the Sparta kings, right? I used to
1: be very big into uh, horse racing, and I had to kind of back away a little bit just because, um, you know, I can overdo it on the on the gambling side easily. So I have to I have to be careful. I like I get a little carried away in the past. So, um, but uh, I appreciate horse racing. It was one of the most exciting. Sports, there is, you know, I mean, Sirico, uh, was a co-owner of a horse, um, that, uh, was, uh, had its first race at Saratoga one summer. And we went up and, and the horse won its maiden race, you know, first race at Saratoga. And it was one of the, it was like my kid had won the race. I mean, it was one of the best days of my life. I'll be honest with you. It was incredible. We were in the winner's circle at Saratoga and it was really a trip.
0: Can I say I'm getting chills because I, I know what that's like. Like, the worst thing that oh, happened man. to me, I bought, and I get this, Saratoga is a magical place, magical and if you man. can get to the winner's circle there, I, you know, we we owned a horse that won the Pacific Classic at Del Mar, so I know what you're talking about, but then again, you win any race at venues like this, it doesn't matter. It feels like you won a Breeders' Cup race or the Derby. Oh, no,
1: it's it's incredible. It was really fun. I went uh, to the Kentucky Derby 2001. And I and I picked the winner on camera, like before the race. And it was Monarcos. So it was kind of, i think he was like thirteen to one or something. It was a long shot, and uh, so that kind of gave me a certain cred after that because um, <laughs> everyone figured I knew what I was doing.
0: Right, right. <laughs> Every year they're calling you up, probably right. Yeah, exactly. All right, so final thought about the podcast. Michael, you mentioned like like a stage show, like the world has changed, and you guys were not going to do it, but then you decided to do it, and it's so good that it's out there and it's already began, which is awesome. But this is, I mean, tailor made for a performance show or to play in theaters. Was something like that in the works, or might that still be in the works?
1: You mean taking the, the podcast? Yes,
0: on, on the road. road that, yeah, that yeah. Kind
1: of thing. Well, yeah. yeah, we'll let you know. Let's see how it goes. I mean, we're definitely thinking about it as a possibility. We want to see how it does first, and you know we're hoping to have the first season, which is the first the first season of the show of the sopranos with episode thirteen episodes. We're hoping to have you know the first season done in the can by the end of the month. Maybe out by early May, the first season, and keep going from there and maybe take it on the road. Why not?
0: Good. Why not? Listen, what a thrill. So awesome to talk to you, Michael. I really appreciate the uh, time and especially you giving me as much time as you did. Such an amazing show. And welcome to the podcast community, my friend. Great to have you on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me, Tim. I enjoyed it a lot.
0: A tremendous thanks to Michael Imperioli for finding time to sit down and chop it up with us during a really, really challenging time for him and his family. He certainly did not have to do that, but he did, and I appreciate that greatly. That's an amazing conversation, especially given his personal circumstances. And if you like what you heard, please make sure you subscribe. We drop an episode just like this one every single Wednesday. As always, thank you so much for your support and making the pod part of your routine. I will see you right back here a week from today, but until then... Here are your voicemails first new message. Hey Jim, this is Carlos in the O.C. Been listening to it from the days when you actually parked
1: the actual Maricor in front of that little uh, building on Pacific Highway in San Diego. Just listen to your Tony Hawk podcast. That was awesome. I actually was a classmate
0: of his in elementary school and remember playing basketball and baseball with him before he gave it all up for the board. I actually even went to the same skate park he was talking about. It used to be at the intersection
1: of the 8 and the 805. Thanks again for all the work you're doing. Be safe. Be healthy.
0: Out. Message saved. Next message.
1: Just heard you advertise for a book. Do they not know who your demographics are? I mean, seriously, I know a lot of clones, and I don't know if any of them know how to read. There's a few of us that can and finish school and know what letters on a book and paper and all that is, but...
0: Message deleted. Next message.
1: Hey, Jim. Hendrick and Portland here. Please get the Good Brothers on the podcast. They all need a good party right now and they're absolute cold and I don't care what WWE is holding them back anymore. They just need to go at it. Come on!
0: Message deleted. Next message.
1: Jimmy and Corn, just want to say it's sitting here watching a DVR of the show this Friday. Great. My wife's over here trying to Skype from home. I'm trying to ease into the afternoon beverages, even though it's early morning. But one thing, Brad and Corona really never had to beat the Cabellon Asian. That's all I can say there. Out.
0: Message saved. Next message.
1: Romy, JJ, and KC, buddy. Super impressed with the podcast. Tony Hawk just killed it. I mean, I can't believe him and evil fucking Knievel We're hanging out. Man, that would have been an awesome place to be a fly on that wall. As essential employees, we're out there. We're working it every day. They're keeping our spirits up, especially this week. Freaking missing the masters right now has me all sorts of bummed out. Just going to have to have a nice whiskey and a tumbler and drink it all day long.
0: Message saved. Next message.
1: Romy, Justin from Melbourne, dude. Last Friday was not good Friday. It was great Friday. When you got Mark in Hollywood, Vic and the BIC all calling in the same day. Are you kidding me? And BIC, really? Talking about the dude who is just dominating the Internet with the naked pics. Don't be jealous, BIC, just because he's been circumcised.
0: Message deleted. You
1: have no more messages.